When you're fighting something as big as climate change, you need every advantage you can get. Well, here's a rather big advantage. An international team of researchers has perfected a technique for trapping greenhouse gases using a geologic process that, while once thought to take millennia, actually only requires a couple of years. Basically, they turn carbon dioxide into stone. The team already has it working in Iceland, and on today's show, Barnard College Earth scientist Martin Stuta, one of the researchers on the project, talks about how they got it working there and what it might take to bring it to the United States. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. So in the studio here today, I have Martin Stuta, who is a professor of environmental science at Barnard College and adjunct senior research scientist at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. And he's here to talk about uh, really a breakthrough in um, fighting some of the problems of greenhouse gases and climate change. Martin, thanks for coming in today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Uh, so I know that if I try and explain what you've been working on, it's not going to make any sense. So maybe you can kind of set the stage for the research you've been doing and, and why it's something that you've been working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of us think that uh, increasing CO2 levels in the atmosphere are a problem because it causes climate change, causes rising sea levels, rising temperatures, uh, redistribution of water on, on the planet, more precipitation in mm-hmm. some places and less in others. So we have been working on, on technologies to, to reduce emissions or maybe even in the long run take out CO2 from the atmosphere. So what we do is uh, we're working on disposal techniques. How can we, where can we put the CO2 that we're taking out of the atmosphere or that we capture before it goes into the atmosphere? Yeah. And we have been working on a project in Iceland. Iceland is a volcanic island. So most of it consists sort of a rock called basalt, lava basically. <laughs> and uh, we know that these rocks uh, react with CO2, carbon dioxide, uh, and, and form carbonates. Carbonates uh, are things like seashells or mm-hmm. chalk. And we know that happens naturally, but we are, you know, most people thought that these reactions take a long time, maybe thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, but then there were laboratory experiments done and some modeling studies, and it seemed like these reactions might be a lot faster. Basalt is a very common rock on Earth. Oh. So about 10% of uh, the continents are made out of basalt. And then really cool, pretty much all the ocean floor is made of basalt too. Okay. So you have uh, access to, to vast uh, quantities of these rocks. So we wanted to take advantage of that and figure out if we could use these basalt formations as a place to dispose of the CO2. Okay, so and I've heard before of, ter- of things like carbon sequestration or carbon capture and storage. So is this like a different, uh, like a new technique for doing that or is this something different? Yeah, the technology that we are employing is is considered um, storage in carbon capture and storage or sequestration. But it is different in the sense that we are injecting into a rock formation that chemically is active and reacts with the CO2. So the conventional approach is to put CO2 in former oil or gas reservoirs Mm -hmm. or into very deep saline groundwater. Yeah. You would put the CO2 down there as a gas or as a supercritical fluid, to be technically correct. <laughs> what does um, supercritical mean? So it means CO2 under very high pressure. Okay. Uh, so it, it has some special properties. But you compress the gas, basically, and you put it down to these formations. And the, the, there's a small danger that since 
this CO2 is buoyant. That means it's sort of lighter than its environment. It tries to move upwards. So it's like yeah. pouring seltzer water into a glass and seeing the bubble rise. Okay, right. These formations have been studied very carefully and they have what we call cap rocks on top. So it's very unlikely for these bubbles to, mm -hmm. to reach the surface. But um, we have to guarantee that for thousands and thousands of yeah. years, none of that can happen. So like if you lose track of where one of these cap rocks are and somebody drills through it later, yeah. like well now you have all that CO2 back. Yes, exactly. So it will come back to the surface. So our technology is different in the sense that we are, first of all, dissolving CO2 in water. And then we are injecting the mixture into this basalt formation and it mm -hmm. flows in the subsurface, reacts with the rocks very quickly, and we convert all that CO2 into rocks, mm -hmm. into things like seashells or chalk. And the, the rocks can't move anymore, so they stay down there. And under natural conditions, uh, they would remain carbonates, carbon minerals, and they cannot move to the surface, right? So it's much, much safer in the long run. Yeah. Seashells? You could, so we'll have, you know, thanks to climate change, we'll have more seashells or something? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not seashells. It's the same it's chemistry. Similar material. Same, similar material like limestone. So it's all the same chemical formula. Yeah. But of course, we are forming in a different way than the seashells were yeah. formed. Um, you said it's in conjunction with a power plant in Iceland. You're based in New York. Um, what, what kind of led to setting up this field experiment? How do, you, how do you come up with the idea? How do you end up finding the place that's going to say, yeah, yeah, let's try it? And how then do you actually like, go through the process of getting it in the field working? Mm -hmm. What really started it off was that one of my colleagues, Wally Broker at uh, Columbia, he's a very mm -hmm. famous geochemist, he gave a talk in Iceland. And uh, it just so happens that in addition to a lot of university folks from the University of Iceland, the president of Iceland was there too and listened <laughs> in. So he, he is uh, very interested in climate change. And uh, at the time, he wanted to make Iceland sort of the first country to not emit any CO2 at all. I mean, Iceland is already very oh, wow. green. Right, yeah, because they, they use a lot of geothermal. <coughs> right? Geothermal energy. They also have a lot of hydropower. There's lots of water there. Uh, so it's really only fossil fuels only used for, for cars and airplanes for the most part, so very little. But, but he wanted to drive it even further. Um, so I should maybe say something about the geothermal power plants because maybe it uh, is a little bit of a surprise. Why would geothermal power plants emit CO2, right? They take right. steam, water out of the ground, they run their turbines. Now, um, Iceland is, is an interesting place because it's so actively... Um, in, um, with earthquakes and volcanoes, tectonically active. The magma, the, the liquid rock, is very close to the surface in Iceland. You know, mm -hmm. Sometimes it comes up to the surface. So there's, uh, when you drill a hole, the temperature rises much more rapidly than elsewhere oh, on, on Earth. The downside is that the, these magma is, is releasing CO2 and other gases. And um, the heat from the magma is warming up the water. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is the source of the energy for the geothermal power plants. Uh, so at, in a geothermal well in Iceland would be a well that's a few kilometers long um, and would tap these, these hot waters at depth. The temp typical temperature is about 300 degrees C. Okay. So that's way above the boiling point of water. So when this fluid comes to the surface, it becomes steam right away. And this steam uh, contains CO2 and at this particular site also hydrogen sulfide, H2S, which is a hazardous corrosive gas. Okay. Smells like rotten eggs yeah. you know, at low concentrations. Um, but it's, it's dangerous and corrosive. So these gases are in there in the steam. They run for the turbine. 
And then currently, most of these gases are emitted to the atmosphere. So those are the gases we are using in this experiment. So you pretty much just, so they rise from, from the earth, mm -hmm. they turn this turbine, and then you pretty much capture them the right gas, after that. Yes, the gas. It's a very easy process, not very expensive at all. And then the gases go through a pipeline to the injection site. The injection okay. site is maybe three kilometers or so away, so not, not far. Um, and then at the injection site, we have um, a well that is about, um, you know, it's actually a, quite, it's a deep well. It's um, more than a kilometer deep, but we, we are injecting into a mm -hmm. formation that's only 500 meters below ground. And we, so there are two, uh, two pipelines going down that hole, that well. One contains these gases, CO2 mm -hmm. or H2S, and the other pipe contains water. So we take the water from a well nearby, a freshwater well, a shallow well, and we um, use that water to pump it down to the, into the injection well. And then at depth, we are mixing the CO2 and the water. And it's basically a process that you would have in an aquarium, like yeah. a, these bubble stones, yeah. right? So we have something similar down there. It sounds similar to fracking, and I understand like the end product is or the the end goal is different, and it sounds like also there's a lot less pressure involved. But just in as you know, in as much as you're talking about sort of public perception and convincing people it's a good idea, are there any concerns that there that exist about fracking that are related here? Because I feel like people would also, I think people would hear this and think about mm -hmm. that and think, well, there's been this huge effort to say that's a bad idea. Why is this one a good idea? Yeah. So yeah, there is. Um, uh, some similarities. Uh, so we are injecting fluids into the ground, right? Mm -hmm. So we're increasing the pressure at depth. And um, one of the, the issues with hydraulic fracturing is the disposal of waste fluids that are being produced. And those are also injected mm -hmm. in, in this country. And uh, potentially you can cause uh, small earthquakes right. through these injections. So this there's a risk there. Um, but uh, I think we understand a lot better you know, in, in the fracking context or in the overall injection of waste fluids into the subsurface, why these happen and where they can happen. So because we, we know there has to be certain conditions, have to be certain conditions in the subsurface to that these earthquakes can be triggered. So um, it probably can be, um, the risk can be reduced uh, by, by going to the right places. As a scientist, you just have to experiment at a smaller scale first and see if that potential seems mm -hmm. to be there or not. That's that pretty much the yes, approach you have to take? Yes, that's pretty much it. So you scale it up slowly and monitor very carefully what's happening and um, then react to any any uh, unforeseen consequences. Yeah. Is this chemical reaction reversible? I mean, is there something that could turn this rock back into CO2? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, if you have a piece of chalk or limestone and you put some vinegar on it, it bubbles, right? Oh, yeah. So that's if you expose carbonates to an acid, uh, you would create the CO2 again. Uh, so if you wanted to mobilize the CO2 again, you would have to inject an acid into the subsurface and d dissolve the carbonates. Under natural conditions, that could not happen because the... Um, the um, groundwater in basaltic formations tend to be alkaline, not acidic. So they have a pH above neutral. Uh, so they are, uh, they, under those conditions, carbonates are stable and they would mm -hmm. not decompose. But if somebody would inject vinegar or some other acid, uh, you know, hydrochloric acid or something, uh, into the ground, it would re-dissolve those carbonates. Okay. But that's, yeah, that seems unlikely. Yeah. 
it's like some sort and of it would be it would not be a catastrophic process most likely either you know it would be mm -hmm. a slow process and you could react to it if you would inject this acid down there because I don't know because of what reason you would do that but imagine you would do it like some you would notice terrorism yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know you have to reach this whole formation so it's not so easy I mean the the flow velocities um, or the speed at which the water moves in the subsurface is slow, right? So these yeah. things would not happen very rapidly. So you would recognize it pretty quickly if you do it by accident. Yeah. Are the carbonates, are they useful for anything? I mean, could you take this, could you use this as a raw material for something else? No, the cost of, of uh, taking those carbonates out of the formation at depth uh, would, uh, would be just prohibitive. And <clears throat> there are many, many other places where these carbonates are much easier to access. You know, there are chalk rocks all over the place and limestone is a very, very common rock on earth, right? So if you need carbonates for some purpose, um, there are many, many places where you can get it from. But uh, the idea has been around to, uh, you know, we are bringing the CO2 to the rocks. You can also bring the rocks to the CO2. So there hmm. is an alternative approach where you would take basalts and similar kind of rocks and bring them to the source of CO2 and letting the rocks react with the CO2. And then you could use this material as building material and so on. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering about. I was wondering if there was a reason why it had to be, why this process had to be done underground. Yeah, I think it's probably just because of the scale of it. If you really want to upscale this, there probably would not be enough... Uh, demand for this material that you're creating and it's uh, and transporting all these rocks is also very expensive right <laughs> yeah. it's it's not you can't pump them through a pipeline which is much easier to do for the co2 so it's it's more economically uh, economical to bring the co2 to the rocks and the other way around but technically it can be done and people have thought that through and there are publications about it and it's 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 possible to do this when we first started talking, when you first started talking about the geothermal plant, you were talking about the H2S gas, which is maybe a next step is figuring out how to capture that. Um, so similar techniques could work with other gases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So H2S is an important one because that's also a component of flue gases from uh, coal-fired power plants. You know, there's mm -hmm. sulfur in the coal often, and uh, when you burn that sulfur, you uh, you will you might create some of the H2S um, as well, and and also sulfuric acid. Um, so uh, gases that contain some form of sulfur um, are important to deal with. And the the what we found out, we did two injections in this uh, study, and one was a pure CO2 injection, and the other one was a mixed H2S mm -hmm. and CO2 injection. And uh, in terms of the, the chemistry in the subsurface, they behave, these mixtures behave very similarly to the CO2. Um, the, the, the one downside was is that we um, clogged up the injection well more frequently. I mean, we never clogged them up with a pure CO2 injection, but we had to refresh the well a few times mm -hmm. during the mixed gas injection. So there are some, it's probably some bio, I mean, there are some uh, group members that study the biology of yeah. microorganisms in these experiments. And um, it's it's likely that there were some biofilms that formed uh, that that um, reduced the rate at which we could inject. So we had to refresh the well a few times. Wait, it's like living things were living growing things, yeah. in the injection well? Mm -hmm, that's right. It it's like a biofilm. What does that mean exactly? It's, it's sort of a slimy substance when it comes up to the surface. Um, but it's, it's alive. It's alive. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> 
And so it sounds like I'm just trying to think about the the sort of criteria for places where you could implement this. So it sounds like, you know, maybe along like populated coastal areas is kind of the ideal place where there's probably some industry there, but you also have access to the basalts in the mm-hmm. ocean floor. And um, does that seem like that's kind of the what yeah. would be the next step? That's that we for, this for more us. Widely? Yeah. That's for us the next goal. E- even off uh, New York City, there are some basalt formations, the Palisades, uh, mm-hmm. you know, along the Hudson River. Um, those, those, this is also a basalt. So it's a si- oh. very, very similar formation, but it's much older than the Icelandic rock. So it probably okay, would not right. react as well, but um, yeah. it would react also. It would, in principle, the same thing would happen there. Uh, in, 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 uh, in North America, the, the biggest formation is the so-called Columbia River basalt in, in Washington state. Mm-hmm. So that's basically a giant lava flow where uh, another group, the, the only other group that does this kind of work has been doing some injections as well. Oh, really? So yeah. they had success? Uh, they, as far as we can tell and hear from them, yes, but a lot of these results are not published yet. Well, so what's your sense of how, uh, how much this could be expanded or scaled up? From our small pilot experiment, they already have upscaled it to a quarter of their production, and they hope that um, in a couple of years they will be injecting everything that they produce, and that's it. You know, they can't. There's no no more CO2 for them yeah. to inject. They will do everything. So already the upscaling is happening, but of course this is still small compared to emissions. Right. Um, <clears throat> so we have to find um, other formations uh, and you know large CO2 sources to demonstrate that this can be done on, the, on, a, on an even larger industrial scale. So the Columbia River basalt would be an option, or you know, it's probably much more acceptable to, to the public if we would go offshore. So if you, go, if you consider Washington State, there is basaltic rock very close to the shoreline. It was a two-year-long study, is that right? The pilot? Yes. And they've started scaling things up So already which seems fast to me. So if, you know, if like this team working in Washington were to try and convince somebody here to try and and try this on a larger scale, I mean, what do you think is would be the timeline if companies are willing to try this here to actually get some of these systems in place in the U.S.? I think on the scale that we did the experiment in Iceland, it wouldn't be a big issue. It could be as fast. Mm-hmm. But um, the next step, we think, has to be a much, much larger scale injection. And uh, that will require permits uh, that need to be given for these injections and there's not a lot of precedence for these kind of permits right so yeah. I, I would anticipate that there will be a lot of red tape and it will be very difficult uh, to get the permissions to do all this right and uh, there will probably be a local opposition against it and that those are the steps that will slow things down yeah. um, it's not the technology or um, things like that and and the you know they are there are other CO2 sequestration projects in the United States. The Department of Energy has supported these, and they are very large scale as well. And some of them have been very successful, and others have struggled with this process of getting yeah. the permission to actually do what they wanted to do. Yeah. It was much easier in Iceland because it was a much smaller scale injection that we did. Um, and, you know, everybody in Iceland, to be honest, is really well educated and it doesn't take much to convince them that this all makes sense. While, you yeah. Know, not the same here. It's not the same here. So this might be the last question I wanted to ask, and this might be a little bit out of your um, your your area of concern, but have you guys done any sort of like back-of-the-envelope calculations to say, well, you know, if in the U.S. there's 
you know, X number of sites where this could be practical. And if half of them implemented it, this is how much carbon we could we could remove from what we're producing right now. Have you guys thought about that at all? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of just the storage reservoir, there is no issue. There's plenty of rocks. It's more how many of these operations do you want to run? Um, how many plants can you really capture the CO2 from? And is the public willing to pay for uh, those are sort of the bigger issues. And mm -hmm. without having a carbon tax in place, I think without an incentive, none of that is going to go forward, right? So yeah. we have to have this in place. The estimates that um, uh, various agencies that, that have studied this um, have made is, you know, of the order of 10, 20% perhaps is realistic to, yeah. to, to uh, uh, shoot for. Um, this is not the solution of to, to global warming and uh, CO2 emissions, right? We still have to move to renewable energy very quickly, increase uh, efficiency and do all these things. But if it turns out that climate change is worse than we thought it is, mm -hmm. we will have to reduce the CO2 levels again in the atmosphere. And uh, if we need to do this, you know, again, we have to find a place to put the CO2. Yeah. And this becomes then also very relevant, right, as a technology. Well, thank you so much for coming in and, and speaking with us. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics editor-in-chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And also don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. If you want to read more about carbon sequestration, check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.